I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a talk by Gary Lockman. From the first Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult Conference in London, 2016. His presentation was called, Why Was Freud Afraid of the Occult? Collected papers from this conference are available in the Fenris Wolf, Volume Number 9, available from Tripart Books. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Join us this Sunday, February 20th, at Morbid Anatomy Museum online as Gary Lockman presents Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Presenting alongside Gary is Carl Abrahamson, who will be presenting Tripping the Dark Light Fantastic, Notes on the Occult Influence of Filmmaker Derek Jarman. To register, visit morbidanatomy.org events. The event is at 2 p.m. New York time, which is 8 p.m. Central European time, or 7 p.m. in London. Gary Lockman is the author of many books about consciousness, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition, including The Return of Holy Russia, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, and Beyond the Robot, The Life and Work of Colin Wilson. He writes for many journals in the US, UK, and Europe lectures around the world, and his work has been translated into more than a dozen languages. In a former life, he was a founding member of the pop group Blondie, and in 2006, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Before moving to London in 1996 and becoming a full-time writer, Lachman studied philosophy, managed a metaphysical bookshop, taught English literature, and was a science writer for UCLA. He is an adjunct professor of transformative studies with the California Institute of Integral Studies. You can follow him at his website, garylachman.co.uk. That's G-A-R-Y-L-A-C-H-M-A-N dot C-O dot U-K. You can also follow him at Twitter at Gary Lockman. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry 
Available from Chapart Books 2019. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V A N E S S A 23 C A R L. Thank you so much to all our Patreon patrons for your support. It is so very appreciated. picture of Freud and Young, um, but uh, I failed to give the memory stick to Carl, so <laughs> you don't have to remember what they, they look like. Um, and uh, yeah, before I talk, I should say that um, I have to, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Freud myself. And I don't know what he thinks of me, but I, I, um, I have to say, I think he, you know, he's, he's as pernicious an influence on the Western mind as uh, Marx and Darwin and quite a few others, but I'm not going to take up too much time <clears throat> with that. But um, I just want to say that so I'm not, I'm not speaking under, under uh, false pretenses or something like that. So. Um, but, yeah, my title is Why Was Freud Afraid of the Occult? Well, I think the first thing we have to figure out is, was he? Was he afraid of the Occult? Uh, I think he was. And my evidence for that is uh, the curious incident of the poltergeist and Freud's bookcase. So we have to take ourselves back to Vienna in 1909. Uh, Jung and Freud are fast friends at this point. Uh, Freud's a father figure for, for Jung. And um, they've been corresponding since about 1906. Uh, I think they first met in 1907. Uh, and this, I think, probably second visit that Jung has made to uh, Vienna to, to talk with Freud. And they get into a conversation, a discussion about the occult, or what we would call the paranormal. And if you know you're young, Jung was you know, much more, well, he was much more into it uh, than, than Freud was. Uh, but in the, in the conversation, uh, where Freud is basically dismissing everything that Jung's saying, Jung starts to feel his diaphragm is heating up. And it wasn't the sauerkraut he had earlier uh, for lunch. He's getting very, very tense and irritable uh, with his father figure, uh, Herr Freud. And in the midst of all this, this argument going on, there's suddenly a loud bang, or something along those lines, uh, from Freud's bookcase. And it's enough so that both of them jump back, jump out of their seats, or something like that. And they're afraid the bookcase is going to fall on them. And uh, Jung is a very good tactician. He takes the opportunity to say, there, that is an example of so-called catalytic exteriorization phenomena, which is Jung's very uh, long-winded circumlocation for a poltergeist, or a ghost of a spook. <laughs> if you know uh, Freud, Jung never calls anything uh, a spade, whether it's a spade or not. So it's, you know, <laughs> finally you get to it somewhere. Freud, Freud's much more... Freud's much more specific but uh, limited, and Jung's broader but rather vague. Um, and so, to, to respond to that, Freud says, Bosch, as I just said, very specific, Bosch. 
And Jung said more or less, not Bosch. <laughs> and just to prove my point, we're going to have another bang right now. <laughs> bang on cue, as it were, it happens. And in one account of it, um, the person accounting it said Freud was aghast. I like this idea, aghast. I have a picture, he's got the cigar, he pulls out his mouth, you know, his glasses go down, eyebrows go up. And like a Warner Brothers cartoon, the mirror shoots out, something like that. And uh, he's basically spooked. He's spooked by this. And uh, in one account, uh, it's said, uh, at this point, Freud grew mistrustful of Jung. Now, you got to understand the context, again, where Jung is basically Freud's bulldog. Uh, he's, he's battling for psychoanalysis. Uh, he's the heir apparent. He's the one who's going to inherit the kingdom, the empire, and all that. He's battling away. He's a very can-do kind of guy, Jung. He, he, he has a lot on his plate all the time. Uh, he's working at the Bergolsley Clinic. But he's also writing up a storm. and He's, he's gathering together conferences like these across Europe and so on, really, you know, working, working for Freud. Uh, but at the same time, he's got his own complexes to unravel, and his own neuroses to uncover and all that. He's got his own genius, his own brilliance. So he's this tension there. He wants to be the good boy, he believes in psychoanalysis, he wants to help his father and Freud. At the same time, he wants to break out on his own and get into his own thing. Um, and not too long after this incident, there's another occasion we're uh, again talking along these sorts of lines. And Freud looks at Jung very plaintively and he asks him, you know, you must never, ever, 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 ever give up on the sexual theory of neurosis. And Jung says that, Freud says this in the same way as a father would say to his son, now son, promise me, we'll go to church every Sunday. You'll be a good boy, and you'll do exactly. So Jung's a little worried, like, well, what's going on here? Um, so he asks Freud, why? You know, why, 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 do I, why do I have to commit so completely to this? And Freud says, because uh, we must make it an unshakable bulwark against the black tide of mud of occultism. <laughs> now, he's talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's really talking to the wrong guy about this, and not, you know, not to get too Freudian about this, but there's a whole Oedipal kind of thing going on here, right? So Freud's saying he wants his son, his heir apparent, to basically keep, you know, keep the faith, carry on, be a bulwark, uh, basically help me you know, plug this hole in the dike here. And Jung, uh, the first thing he wants to do is knock, knock the dike down. Uh, you know, so obviously he believes in the occult and all that, but you know he has to show himself to be his own person. So how do you do that? You know, well, let's take a little lead from Harold Bloom's book. You have the agon, you know, against your 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 uh, inspiration and all that. So in a way, whether Jung knows this or not, he's basically in the right position to do exactly what Freud doesn't want to happen. Um, and the difference between them, in, in, in one sense, is that Jung Jung grew up in the occult. If you know anything about Jung's background, his mother uh, was psychic, she was in seances all the time, she heard voices all the time, she spoke in voices, she got a second identity, she slipped into, it was completely different than the other. Not that that's not true of many mothers and all that, but in this case, it was very, very particular, very, very, very specific in this kind of case. Um, and um, although 
Jung was very cagey about the occult. He, he kept his occult cards very close to his chest. Uh, in the last decade and a half of his life, he was very outspoken about it. He came out and talked about everything. Everything he had been talking about to his close followers for the last 30 or so years, he's sort of talking about out in the open. So synchronicity and the I Ching, and, um, telepathy and gnosis and precognition and all this kind of stuff. He even starts talking about flying saucers and all that. But Jung himself seemed to be able to induce these kinds of things. Uh, people, I mean, if you know, again, the earlier story with, with the sort of um, experience with his, with his mother when there's a loud crack and suddenly there's this big crack in this old oak table that shouldn't have been there and it cracked against the grain, it wasn't in the grain and it wasn't just the wood drying, it was a very moist day, all this kind of stuff. So things happened around him. Um, people, who, people who he let into his sort of inner circle, uh, Kusnak or, or um, Bollingen, uh, they would say whenever he was sort of thinking of something that wasn't quite formulated, the pots and pans would wrap around. He's Gandalf or something, he's walking by and suddenly the, you know, things start moving around. So stuff happened around him and he was used to it. Um, but uh, it, really spooked, it really spooked Freud. And Freud at first believed that something had happened. Something had happened on that occasion. But then when he went back, to, uh, when uh, Jung went back home, uh, he basically talked himself out of it. He thought himself out of it. He reverted back to type, you know, reductionist, materialist, um, you know, basically doesn't believe in any of this kind of thing at all. And in a letter to uh, Jung, Freud wrote that the phenomena was soon deprived of all significance for me, and my readiness to believe vanished along with the spell of your personal presence. So Jung had the mana, you know, he, he, Jung had the stuff that would get on Freud's nerves. And around Jung, Freud would feel that maybe this stuff is really true. But once Jung was away, um, he reverted back to his skeptical, hard-nosed uh, type. Um, Jung himself replied to that letter, and he apologized for what he called his spookery. But he also said that he was glad it happened because it freed him from his father complex from Freud. Basically saying, you know, the fact that I freaked you out made me feel like, yeah, okay, cool, I'm, I'm on my own. I'm, I'm my own person here. Uh, uh, but he does talk about what he called uh, a psychosynthesis. This is one of the earliest expressions of the opposite of psychoanalysis. It's rather than chopping the psyche up into bits and pieces, you almost kind of, let's bring it together. Um, and he talks about what he calls the perspective tendencies in man, which is again, it's kind of certain, you know, a long winter kind of way of talking about some sort of future projection. Um, and it does seem to me this is early way, he, he's not using the word synchronicity yet, I mean, mean, meaningful coincidence for those who don't know synchronicities. Uh, uh, it's an early way to start talking about this. And what he, what he means by these um, perspective tendencies is the objective effect is there objective effect? And it's a kind of, somehow he's talking about how the mind, the psyche, can reach out to the world out there and make things happen out in the world, uh, which is not really how Freud sees things, or pretty much anybody in the 19th century, except for spiritualists and a handful of people interested in psychic phenomena in the occult. Um, and this, this, this idea of the mind reaching out and, and affecting things in the world, again, this is, this is kind of the basis of fundamental notion, I would say, in synchronicity. And I would say synchronicity is probably one of the strangest occult phenomena. I think it's up there with precognition. Precognition is probably the strangest one, because there's no way we can account for it in any way with our usual ways of thinking about the world. It just shouldn't happen. So either every case of precognition is just wrong, or the way we see the world is, is you know, 
inadequate. It can't cover this. Um, and I think Freud himself had an experience of this. And this is one of the things that fed his very ambivalent attitude uh, toward the occult. Um, I said, Jung grew up in it. His mother was psychic, he had a cousin who was psychic. He went to seances, he read spiritualist literature. Freud didn't have that background. He had, he had a much different background. Jung grew up more or less in the country, close to nature. Freud was an urban kid in Vienna, hotbed of modernism and all that sort of thing. Uh, so he had a very, very different sort of environment around him. Uh, and I said, even though Jung himself was very cagey about his occult interests, he kind of, he, he, was, he was selective on what he let out about it. Freud was even worse. Freud was even more ambivalent about it uh, than Jung was. Um, as I said, Jung came out of the closet, as it were, late in life after he had a, a near-death experience following a heart attack. Freud never did that. Freud never sort of came out about it. Um, he allowed himself a few very muted and unsatisfying expressions of his uh, occult interests. Uh, you probably know Freud's writings on the occult. There's a handful of papers, there's a few things. Uh, there's a paper called Psychoanalysis and Telepathy. It's often cited as a major one. And this is, is, is a different context. This is supposed to have been read at an official gathering of the Psychoanalytical Congress, but that's not really what happened. There was a, a kind of informal gathering in the Hearts Mountains um, of Freud's immediate circle, you know, the, the, the acolytes. And they were in this informal gathering. And this is where Freud unbuttoned himself, as it were, and allowed himself to speak about it. Uh, this, this happened in 1921. This was not published in his lifetime. The material he talks about in this paper turns up in other places, but it's all kind of diffused in bits and pieces, so it's not all brought together anywhere except in this paper. And he has other papers, Dreams and Telepathy, it's 1922. The Occult Significance of Dreams, 1925, and Dreams and Occultism is a late paper, 1937. Um, there's three cases that he talks about the most. And in this particular incident, uh, time when he's giving his paper Psychoanalysis and Telepathy to his close followers, uh, he, he himself is a classic example of Freudian resistance because the most interesting case, he forgets to bring those papers. He's supposed to bring this stuff with him to the Hearts Mountain, but oh, he's left them in Vienna. So, uh, so that is not a particularly good beginning uh, for this thing in the, in the first place. He has to make do with whatever material he has brought with him. And then the paper itself begins with a note of paranoia. He says, we are not destined, so it seems, to devote ourselves quietly to the extension of our science. Now what he means in that is there's some veiled references to attacks on Freudian psychoanalysis by Adler and Jung. And those are the two main uh, sort of renegades who have broken away from them, and they're starting to uh, you know, discuss what they see as the drawbacks of psychoanalysis in print. Um, and um, so, but there's already a hint that, you know, psychoanalysis is under attack. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, we have to defend it. We must defend it against these, these people who, you know, uh, who, uh, heretics who are once, you know, in our circle and they've, they've left. Um, Freud starts out by saying there are some superficial similarities between psychoanalysis and occultism. There's a few things they share. And he also says it's not possible anymore to ignore it. We can't ignore the study of occultism anymore. Now he's talking about the 20s, this is post-World War I. There's a resurgence of spiritualism. 
There is a resurgence in theosophy. Uh, this is when Rudolf Steiner's uh, anthroposophy is one of the major influences in, in Central Europe. It's even on the political platforms then. Steiner had a, re a reconstruction program for Europe following World War I. And uh, several, uh, uh, well, there, there was political uh, people running for office uh, informed by his political ideas that actually got on to some councils and so on and so on in different places in Central Europe. So there's a, there's a big resurgence of people like Thomas Mann. He's, he's studying um, the cult phenomena. He writes an essay about it as well. So it's something that has come back up and you can't ignore it anymore. Um, and Freud even, even complains that uh, people are asking him to write for periodicals that are devoted to occultism and he has to decline the, the offer to, to write for them. Um, but there's other troubling things on the horizon. You know, there's this whole sense that things are getting too fluid. Uh, what, what was once stable is starting to uh, break apart, disintegrate to some degree. And he points to uh, discovery of radium. This is something that's very uh, strange. And matter is doing stuff it's not supposed to do. And even worse is Einstein. You know, Einstein's, you know, uh, relativity. The whole idea that time and space are not separate things but they're part of this strange continuum. And that uh, the idea of something happening simultaneously is, you know, not as tenable as it once was. So this whole idea is about space and time are changing too. So, again, Freud feels there's a sense of things being too fluid, too, too, uh, uncertain, uh, too unpredictable now. And again, this is the context with the rise of occultism again. Um, and he's afraid that these developments are going to undermine the objective trustworthiness of science. Psychoanalysis and the occult share the opprobrium of the conventional mind, but at bottom they seek very different things for Freud. Um, Freud basically says occultists want faith. They want something they can believe in. Now, he, occultism for him is you know, mystic Meg and whatever, you know, popular astrology and fortune telling and all that kind of stuff. So, and it, I think what he's talking about is rather low level, or what do you want to call it, like first, first tier sort of occultism, popular occultism. That's the kind of thing that he's, he's referring to. Um, but where the occultists want faith, psychoanalysts um, are motivated by, I love this, an extreme distrust of the power of human wishes. <laughs> and the temptation of the pleasure principle. So uh, if it's something that you really help, makes you feel good believing in, it can't be right. It must be wrong. It must absolutely be incorrect. Uh, analysis, analysts are fundamentally incorrigible mechanists and materialists, and they study the occult so as to finally exclude the wishes of mankind from material reality. Now think about that for a second. I was saying before how synchronicity seems to be at something from the inner world going out. And Freud wants to put up, like Donald Trump wants to put a wall up between <laughs> the United States and Mexico. Freud wants to put a wall up between our, our wishes and the outer world. Our outer world is completely oblivious to our wishes, what we want. It, it knows nothing about us. That's the strict 19th century, you know. In here is completely separate, and out there is completely separate, and they never, they never meet. They never meet anywhere whatsoever. Um, but Freud is, again, he's ambivalent about it. He knows that there's something there. And as I said, he's afraid of it. He's afraid of it. Um, he says, there's little doubt that if we pay attention to a cult phenomenon, they will occur and their reality will be confirmed. Right. 
but this is a problem because the confirmation of occult phenomena will extend belief in whatever explanation that people will find to be the easiest and the most to their taste. So basically he's saying, you know, if, if you let any in, you, you're, you're releasing the floodgates. You're taking your finger out of the dike that he asked his good son Freud to help him uh, maintain. Occultism panders to our credulity. It, it will be joyfully acclaimed by all the credulity lying ready to hand since the infancy of the human race and the childhood of the individual. Uh, we're basically too credulous, too gullible, and the first time anything like any kind of occult answer comes up, we're going to go for it completely and forget about science and critical thinking and all that kind of thing. Freud is really worried about a fearful collapse of critical thought, of determinist standards, and of mechanistic science. Now, it's not one worth of truth. I didn't want to say true. Is it true? No, it's dangerous. It's going to upset our vision of the world as materialist scientists. Reduction is everything nice in its place. It is dangerous like radium is dangerous. And we know radium is dangerous, so you get too close to it for a while. But I guess Freud's saying the same thing. The occult radiations are going to be dangerous. They're going to warp our mind in some way. And as I was putting notes together for this, it, I, I know this is a, it's a bit ana anachronistic, um, but uh, Freud's attitude to this reminded me very much of uh, Theodore Adorno's. If you know Adorno, he's a neo-Marxist. Uh, Frankfurt School, um, you know, uh, is somebody who wanted to make Marxism more interesting, basically. It's pretty, it pretty boring, uh, the lumpen proletet kind of Marxism. So Adorno wanted to bring culture back in, and art, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, but uh, he was very, you know, he was, again, he and his, with his colleague, Max Horkheim, they were very afraid about the collapse of reason, the flight of reason, the flight to the irrational. And this, rightly so, when they're writing about it, it's during the rise of fascism and all of that. And that's why Jung got tarred with the fascist brush, because was, he was interested in the non-rational, in the mythic, not the critical. Uh, you know, the, these darker, well, darker from 40 point of view, whatever, deeper urges that are not, you know, we can't control them with the critical mind. And this was something that Frankfurt School and others were concerned with being tapped by Hitler and Mussolini and other forms of fascist thought. You know, you know, for, for both of them, myth is more important than the truth. Obviously, myth is more, uh, and as we're starting to see it uh, happen in the United States now, I mean, Trump isn't that far away from that. You know, he's talking about things, making America great, and all this kind of stuff, and it's totally going above and below any kind of critical thought about policies. It's hitting kind of ideals and wishes and all that kind of stuff. And another one I thought was very similar was H.P. Lovecraft, who is, was a contemporary of Freud's. Uh, he was writing his weird stories in Weird Tales magazine around the same time. He had nothing good to say about Freud or Jung or psychoanalysis in any way whatsoever. But he did share with uh, Freud this kind of idea that we have to maintain strict materialist, reductionist, 19th century science. Uh, although he wrote stories having to deal with the occult and weird stuff and supernatural, uh, Lovecraft professed to be this rabid, unshakable materialist. And so, on. so again, it's the kind of thing, there's this dark stuff over there, and we got it like not, you know, if, if you know you love craft, knowledge is the thing that kills all of his heroes. They find out something they shouldn't know. When they find it out, it drives them mad. That's something very much along the same lines I would say with Freud. It says, yes, that's stuff there, but we, we can't, we have to keep it away. Sheer dogma will stop the flood of occultism. Nothing else. Sheer dogma will do it. Um, so, but, as I say, Freud's very ambivalent about this. He rejects the occult professionally, but he maintains a personal interest in it. And as I said, his writings display this, this, this ambivalence. 
And his daughter Anna remarked that the subject fascinated him, but it repelled him as well. Uh, his biographer Ernest Jones said that Freud liked telling stories of strange coincidences and mysterious voices and weird things happening, and then these things had a kind of hold on them. As you put it, Freud was superstitious. Uh, There's a story where he sacrificed one of his uh, antiquities. If you know, you know, we always have these statues of Egyptian gods and Greek you know, deities and so on and so on. There was one that he loved a great deal. His daughter Matilda was very ill, and so to propitiate the gods, he, he, he smashed one of these things, he destroyed it. Now that's not a particularly rational thing to do, is it? Now the idea was that, you know, the old Greek mythology, uh, things are doing, going too well for you, you do something bad before the gods do it. Because they'll really do it to you. So you, you show, you, you're aware of hubris, so you break something, you lose your glasses, or you lose your umbrella, like Freud would say, or something. Uh, and then the gods say, okay, he's, this person is not as uppity as we thought. So, so Freud's basically doing it, he's saying, okay, please, you know, don't let my daughter die. So he's smashing some thing that probably cost a lot and is dear to him. But this is the arch-rationalist who wants to keep occultism at bay through sheer dogma. Well, when it gets down to it, he's as much a believer as, as everybody else is. So obviously he's, you know, giving something that's dear uh, to him up in order to save his daughter. Um, so in one sense, he believes in it, in another sense, he doesn't. Uh, in his paper, Dreams and Telepathy, he informs the reader that they will not learn anything about telepathy in this paper. <laughs> not even whether he believes in it or not. Uh, he had no opinion on it one way or another. And as I suspect you imagine, I'm not the first one to ask, well, why did you write it in the first place? Right? You're basically saying, I'm not going to tell you anything about telepathy. I don't know whether it's true or not. I don't know whether I believe in it or not. But spend the next half hour reading my paper about it now. Um, so why this double talk? Why, why is he having this double talk? He's giving and taking away at the same time. Especially when we know by 1925 he's engaging in informal telepathic experiments with Anna, with his, with his daughter Anna. Uh, and Sandor Frenzy was involved in these as well. We don't know exactly, at least I, I couldn't find out before this morning or this afternoon, exactly what went on in the experiments. I don't think Forenzi kept uh, a real clear account of them. And according to Peter Gay, another of Freud's biography, it had something to do with them hunting for mushrooms. So I don't know. You know, uh, They're out in the fields outside Vienna looking for mushrooms, and Freud's saying to Anna, and she says, <laughs> Did you get one? Yes, or not that one. That one's poisonous, or something. Something along those lines, apparently. But then, when Sandor Ferenczi suggested reading a paper about their experiments to the Psychoanalytical Congress, Freud said no. All right. So he does the experiments. They're out picking mushrooms. They're reading each other's thoughts about this. Should he tell the whole world about it? No. So this is a personal matter for Freud. My interest in telepathy is a personal matter, like his love of cigars and his Jewishness. Uh, but to me, it's, it's, it, 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 dis, it displays a profound ambivalence, uh, an erotic ambivalence, if I may be so bold as to, as to say this. Uh, he did this neurotic two-step, with it indulging his interest and then declaring that it was fundamentally unimportant and not necessary for psychoanalysis. Uh, and then, when he does talk about it, he talks about it to a secret brotherhood. There's like a small group of acolytes around him, like the Illuminati around him in this, this, this cabin up in the Hearts Mountain. He's talking to them about it. They're the ones who know, but the rest of the world don't know. So again, it's this kind of occult 
in a way, esoteric sort of gesture. He's in it, but he doesn't want anybody else to know about it as well. So he's a closeted cultist. Going to talk. Uh, okay, when he does talk about the, the cases of, of telepathy in, in um, his papers, there's, uh, basically he tries to explain two examples of fortune telling in terms of telepathy. So he wants to get rid of precognition, and he'll, he'll, he's, he's willing to accept telepathy as a way of knocking precognition out of the, out of the contest. Because as I said, precognition has got to be the most difficult thing for anybody of a reductionist materialist mind to accept. Because something that hasn't happened yet is having an effect on stuff now. How something that doesn't exist can have an effect in that way just doesn't make sense in terms of our usual idea of space and time. Um, but again, you know, when he wants to talk about these things, he's telling us uh, his attitude towards it is unenthusiastic, unenthusiastic and ambivalent. He's disagreeably affected by what he's going to um, tell, tell us. And the cases are related under the pressure of the greatest resistance. And um, I don't know how much time I've got left here. But yeah, three minutes. Well, three minutes, okay. Well, I said, okay, what I wanted to say is that the, the two cases he does talk about at length, in a way, you can kind of see, well, maybe it does work. The way he basically wants, I, I won't go into those into, into great, great length. Basically, he tries to explain how so-called cases of precognition are actually thought transference. But the one he forgot, the one whose paper he left behind, that's the most strangest one, and it's an example of synchronicity. Now, if that word wasn't around at the time, Freud would not have had the word synchronicity, and if he had, he wouldn't have used it, because you know that, that son of a, you know, young, he came up with that word, so I'm not going to use it. Uh, but I'll tell you the story very quickly. At its, this is a period when Freud's um, usual sort of clients and associates weren't around. He was on his own in Vienna. So he took on a case just of a pot boiler, just to keep things going. And it's a fellow named Herr P. And he explained to Herr P at the beginning, like, um, you know, I'm basically, I'm not really interested in you. I'm doing this under duress, like, just doing it to keep working. And as soon as things get back going to normal, uh, I'm going to stop this analysis with you. So one can imagine therapy must have been really in a bad way to accept these conditions under which to do the analysis in any way. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Gary Lockman. Join us this Sunday, February 20th, at Morbid Anatomy online via Zoom at 2 p.m. New York City time, which is 7 p.m. in London and 8 p.m. Central European time. Gary Lockman will be presenting his new book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity and Coincidence. He describes it as such. Can we dream the future? Does time flow in only one direction? What is a meaningful coincidence? Gary Lockman, author of many books on consciousness, culture, and the Western esoteric tradition, and former bassist for Blondie, has been recording his precognitive dreams for 40 years. Dreams, that is, in which bits and pieces of the future turn up ahead of time. In this talk, based on his new book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Lachman will relate how he came to discover that he dreams the future, and how this surprising ability 
is something we all share but are unaware that we do. Along the way, Lachman will look at the work of other time-haunted men, such as J.W. Dunn, J.B. Priestley, P.D. Uspensky, Carl Gustav Jung, Arthur Colster, and others who, like himself, discovered that the tick-tock of the stately clock, with apologies to Cole Porter, is not the only way in which that mysterious something we call time can be understood. You can register at morbidanatomy.org events. You can also find more information at psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. And now the song, Please Join Us, from the album, The Cutting Up of Love and Language, a collaboration I did with British artist Pete Murphy, available at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Please join us. I think maybe it's getting late. Maybe time is running out. Let's go upstairs. Let's go upstairs. I lean in and suck till the end of time. Till the end of time. We were both receiving stiff cocks. You are certainly Yes, most definitely. Accept my solution and be dominated by sheer force. I turn my head, placing it between my fantastic legs. Fuck, bump, fuck, bump, fuck. Well, how about that? began 
This is strictly a philosophical observation.